When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Our passage from John 13 is one of those passages that I fear we are a little too familiar with. It is easy to breeze through it quickly, acknowledging that Jesus gives us this picture-perfect model to serve one another with humility, followed by this supposedly new commandment to love one another. We may have heard or read that washing another's Feet is a duty reserved for the lowest of the low in the culture of that day, which perhaps makes us give pause for a moment to consider just how far removed we are from Jesus' example. If we take a second or two longer to think on the passage, we might even be struck that Jesus is washing all of the disciples' feet, even Judas, who Jesus knows is in the process of betraying him, and Peter, who Jesus knows is about to promise to follow him to the death, but then deny knowing him three times. And so perhaps we receive this passage as a burden instead of a joy. For it's easy to read this passage in a moment of romanticized zeal and challenge ourselves to try harder to love one another, to try to live as a servant. And if you are like me, your attempts to try harder will fail faster than it took you to read this passage. But I've come to the opinion that this passage isn't about trying harder to love one another at all. If we look closely, we aren't the main actors in this narrative. We are the object of the Lord's affection. I've come to believe that before anything else, this passage is about allowing ourselves to be loved. If we are to see this, then we have to look at Jesus' action before we look at his command. As my professor and mentor at Pittsburgh Seminary, Dr. Andrew Purvis, used to tell me regularly in his deep Scottish brogue, Jonathan, you have to put the indicative before the imperative. In other words, before we understand what God commands us to do, we must understand what God has done for us. 
If we can resist reading this passage simply through the lens of the command to love one another, then we will see that the major focus of this narrative is not about what we should be doing, but about what has been done for us. Indeed, Jesus' actions are pointing forward to his greatest act of love in service that is about to unfold in the coming hours. I believe if we will meditate first on Jesus' love for us, then we will correctly understand the commandment to love one another, being empowered by the love of God to love, even as he has first loved us. If all we had in this passage was the narrative of the foot washing, we might realize that Jesus isn't simply washing his disciples' feet to make a lesson out of it. He isn't washing their feet their feet to make a command. He isn't making a spiffy teaching on who is the least or the greatest in the kingdom. There is no ulterior ulterior motive here. Jesus is washing their feet for the sole reason, no pun intended, that he loves them. His love is demonstrated in his service to them, His love is displayed in humbling himself to do even the most demeaning tasks for them. His love for them leads him even to serve them unto death. A death that would not only be incredibly painful, but also incredibly humiliating. As he is stripped and beaten and spat upon and mocked and hung on a cross to die a criminal's death. But it is the nature of God's kingdom in his love, as we will certainly see in the cross of Jesus Christ, that his power is demonstrated through weakness. Look at verses 3 and 4. I love this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. The NIV reads like this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things have been placed under Jesus' power. All things. He has the power that controls the entire universe at his disposal. And how does he choose to exercise this power? He doesn't use his power to stop the events that are unfolding. He doesn't use his power to smite Judas for what he is doing to betray him. Nor does he simply pontificate a command to love. Certainly, after all he had done for the disciples and those with whom he came into contact, he could have just reminded them to love each other. Instead, though, he gets up from the table and he takes off his robe and wraps a towel around his waist like a servant. And he gets on his hands and his knees and he washes the dirty, nasty, smelly feet of his friends. Christ Jesus, though who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If it doesn't blow our minds that the ruler of the universe is on his hands and his knees washing a sinner's feet, even the feet of his betrayer, then we haven't taken the proper amount of time to consider this passage and the extent to which God loves us. Jesus takes one last opportunity before his arrest, not just to tell them that he loves them, but to embody his love for them. This love is foolishness to the world, but it is the power to save. And let's be real honest, this is not what you or I would have done if God gave one of us all the power. Definitely not what I would do if I knew I only had one day left to live. The issue here, for Peter at least, and I'm sure that he isn't the only one, he just happens to be the guy who says what everyone else is always thinking. He isn't so comfortable with Jesus' kindness. Peter says, whoa, Jesus, no way are you going to wash my feet. Again, if we were reading the passage quickly, Peter's resistance would seem to be out of humility. He seems to be insisting that Jesus is the last one who should be washing his feet, and rightly so from a fallen human perspective. After all, Peter has earlier confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Under no condition should the Son of God, the King of the universe, be doing this lowliest of low servants' task for him. But is it really out of humility that Peter resists Jesus' attempt to wash his feet? Jesus knows Peter's heart. And his response to Peter's seemingly humble protest indicates that it is not out of humility that Peter speaks. As Frederick Bruner puts it in his commentary, some humilities are deepest arrogance. Jesus knows it is Pride that drives Peter's comment. At this point, Jesus tells Peter rather bluntly that Peter can have no part of him unless he allows this foot washing. In other words, Peter, you must either receive my love as I give it as a servant or you do not get me at all. The foot washing is a genuine act of love in and of itself, but this act is pointing forward to something much larger. We desperately, desperately need a Savior to cleanse us. This is not something that we can do for ourselves no matter how hard we try. The problem is, as the disciples will soon discover, that God's way of cleansing us is deeply troubling and offensive. It really doesn't matter how deserving we think or feel we are of God's grace. The truth is that none of us, None of us deserve to have God's only son die for us. Even on my best day, I am wretched, a sinner who falls way short of the glory of God. But God does not wish to give us what we deserve. He chooses to give us what we don't deserve, his love. 
True humility lies not in resisting the Lord's kindness, whether it be out of pride or some sort of misplaced reverence for Him, but it comes from submitting. It comes in submitting to the Lord's desire to care for us. It comes in allowing Him to love and serve us. We all have a choice to accept God's love as it comes to us, requiring our true humility or not have Him at all. I know that I have often resisted the Lord's kindness and love, not because I don't think I need to be washed clean, but because I think that I shouldn't be anyone's charity case. How often my attitude is that I can do it on my own. We long to be self-sufficient. We long to be tied to no one and nothing. Our broken human nature is revealed in the mouths of babes who proclaim, I can do it. Having young children in my home, this phrase is all too familiar to me. More often than not, my girls really can't do whatever it is that they want to do. Nonetheless, they will try to the point of frustration before finally giving up and handing me whatever it is and saying, you do it, Papa. Hopefully, I'm doing a good job responding to their demands of self-sufficiency wisely in a way that teaches them to become independent of me as their parent, but ever dependent on the one in whom we we can have no part if we keep demanding our desire to do it for ourselves. Hopefully, I am also being edified in the process. I, too, need to stop trying and failing, trying and failing, and simply say, I can't do it. In my weakness, would your power be made perfect? Would you please do it for me, Father? But the narrative doesn't end there. Instead, Peter swings in the other direction, providing for us, as one commentator puts it, our mirror image Christian. Resisting the foot washing is one side of pride. Peter's response here is the other. If we aren't resisting the Lord's kindness, perhaps we are demanding that the Lord save us. And not in the way of his choosing, but in the way of our choosing. Now, not only does Peter want his feet washed, but he wants Jesus to wash all of him. As I have meditated on the passion narrative the past few years, I have increasingly identified with the criminals being crucified next to Jesus. One criminal is said to keep scoffing at Jesus, demanding that if Jesus is the Messiah, that he should save himself and them. As much as I have seen the harmful effects of entitlement attitudes and the programs that enable that sort of behavior, I have been convinced that I, too, have the same attitude. So often in life, I believe I deserve more than I have been given. And I come to God complaining and demanding better. I think that God owes me something. As I've studied the Gospels more closely, I've discovered more and more how this is one of the most toxic attitudes we can have before the Lord. We see this in Matthew 7 when Jesus warns that not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter his kingdom. They come demanding a prize for all of their good deeds that they have done. And Jesus' reply to them is, go away. I do not know you. Again and again throughout the Gospels, we find that Jesus serves those who come to him in true humility and brokenness, begging for forgiveness and healing, just as we are told by David in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But Jesus reacts very strongly against those who come demanding things from him. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 23 that God will humble the proud but will exalt the humble. There is something that I deserve before the Lord, but it would be incredibly foolish for me to demand that I receive it. While Jesus comes as a servant among us, he does not submit himself to our every whim and desire. He is not a cosmic genie. Rather, he serves us in the way that we need to be served to bring about our salvation. He loves us in the way that we need to be loved, which is not necessarily the way we want to be loved. For Peter, his resistance to Jesus' love moves from a false humility to a blatant demand for how he wishes for Jesus to serve him. Peter's comment in many ways resembles that of the mocking criminal. It is the second criminal who approaches Jesus in true humility, though. He comes cognizant of his failures with a broken and contrite heart, telling the first criminal that they are receiving exactly what they deserve while Jesus has done nothing wrong. The second criminal knows that he deserves death. He knows that his punishment is appropriate to his actions. He also knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he does not demand salvation from him. It is in this place of brokenness that Jesus can truly save him. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is where we find ourselves before the Lord. We must realize that we are broken, but not insist on cleaning ourselves up. God is willing and the only one who is able. We must realize that we are in need of salvation, but not demand from Jesus the way in which we are to be saved. We must, relying on the help of the Holy Spirit, open ourselves to God's love for us. And this requires humility on our part. But if we would be open to it, we will realize That God's love is like no other. God's love will go to the depths for us. God's love will perfect us and make us whole. God's love is truly amazing. Peter will finally discover the extent of Jesus' love for him, but only after denying him three times and moving into a place of absolute brokenness. Jesus finds him out fishing again, just as unsuccessful as ever. And at the end of John's gospel, Peter finally allows himself to be embraced by Jesus' love. And in doing so, he is finally able to truly love Jesus in response. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times Peter affirms his love for Jesus. And three times Jesus instructs him to go forth and love the church. And I think this is the key to this new commandment. The commandment to love each other is not new. Loving your neighbor comes from God's law. Jesus, early in his ministry, has already instructed his followers to love others and expanded the definition of one's neighbor to include one's enemies. What makes it new is that we are commanded to love as God has loved us in Jesus Christ. This does not simply mean that we are to love according to the pattern that Jesus set for us, although it does mean that. But first and foremost, it means that we are to love out of the well of Jesus' love for us. 
As John will later say, we love because God first loved us. We see this in verse 34, which is translated in the ESV as, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The Greek could also be translated here, love one another from the love I have for you. So we do not find the source and strength to love as Jesus loved in ourselves. We find it in Jesus. It is his love overflowing in our lives. This is why John insists in 1 John that if we don't love each other, the love of God is not in us. If it were in us, by virtue of the power of God's love, we would love God and we would love all those whom God loves. This is why Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that they would be given the power to comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus and to know, to understand this love that surpasses all understanding that they might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And this is my prayer for us over these next few days. I pray that we would spend these next few days meditating on God's love for us, especially in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be moved by what God has done for us. I pray that we would discover that there is no greater love than this, than one who lays down his life for another. I pray that we would embrace this love and allow it to wash over us and fill us up. And I pray that out of this love, we would be empowered to love each other in the way that the world takes notice. In just a moment, we will be able to experience God's love enacted for us. We will have the opportunity to taste and see the Lord's goodness for us. On that very night that he washed his disciples' feet and commanded them to love one another, on that very night that he was betrayed, he also redefined the Passover meal. He took the bread, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, telling them that it was his body that was about to be broken for them. And in the same way, he took the cup and told them that it was a cup of the new covenant sealed by his blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of their sins. In the same way that our bodies are filled and energized for the work of our lives by the things that we eat, God's love for us fills us and energizes us to love. Allow God's love to fill you through this meal this evening. Allow God's love to overwhelm you in the days ahead and then embody this love by loving each other that the world might know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, to the glory of his name. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ, we see the extent of your love, and you give to us an example of what it looks like to love you and to love each other. But Lord, you also give us the power to love you and to love each other. Lord, I pray that we would be so filled with your love that it would overflow into every area of our life to the praise of your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.
As we receive this evening's offering, let us remember that God has given us all of himself freely and abundantly. And let us offer to the Lord ourselves as living sacrifices.